served with hoorah. You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's Bad With Money with Gabby Dunn. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn, and this is Bad With Money, a show about finances and feelings where we don't talk down to you. This is an episode that started out being about the wage gap. But of course, it's never that simple here at Bad With Money. The first guest I booked was Koa Beck. Koa is a journalist who wrote a book called White Feminism, From the Suffragettes to Influencers and Who They Leave Behind. Great title. Then my plan was to have another guest, a guest who might speak to bridging the gap and getting women closer to men in terms of salary. And then after I spoke to Koa, I felt that would be doing this interview a disservice. I wanted to do this episode as a palate cleanser from the usual girl boss narrative of women in money media. I have those people on this show just as much as I think I have people who combat it. I try not to have cis straight white men as guests on this show, but that doesn't mean I'm not guilty of perpetuating a narrative. It's hard to avoid when you're doing a show about money. I don't want to come on here every week and not give you all something to take away, some practical financial advice. But I also don't feel like it's my place in the money podcast sphere to be on TikTok telling you how to be rich. There's room for everyone. That's just not this podcast, even though it'd probably increase my listenership. For example, once I gave a talk at a bank's diversity conference and I spoke about systemic issues, even though they did not introduce me as though that was what I was going to talk about. And they were a bit shocked that I took that approach. But afterwards, this woman came up to me and told me she looked at my Instagram and suggested I tailor my online presence to be more professional so as to seem more like a financial expert. Right now, she said, I looked more like a lifestyle influencer. I found that strange at the time, and I think listening to this interview with Koa, I realized a little more about why. I've never come here pretending to be anything other than just another person learning this stuff. This isn't a brand in that way. I'm not going to make you rich. I'm just someone with a podcast who wants to talk about money. And usually a lot of you say that this helped you kickstart your own money journeys, your own ability to better your finances or learn more about how these larger economic systems work. Anyway, I don't want to take up my usual time ruminating on myself in regards to the subject of this episode because I think you should hear from Koa, who is brilliant. So here is Koa Beck. My name is Koa Beck, and I am an author and journalist. At the top of 2021, I published a book called White Feminism from the Suffragettes to Influencers and Who They Leave Behind. And the book explores the history um, as well as the mechanics and ideology of white feminism and traces it from the early formation of white women's rights in the United States through now. Um, I have spent 10 years of my career working in mainstream women's media. So I was um, senior features editor at Mary Claire. I was the executive editor at Vogue.com. And most recently, I was the editor-in-chief of Jezebel. And I stepped down to do this book. Yeah. When you said women's media, I was like, oh, boy. So what is white feminism? And I was watching videos with you, and I couldn't help but think of like, this sort of girl boss capitalism. Um, And it was so fascinating to hear how long that's been going on. Uh, So can you explain white feminism? And then we're going to get into girl boss capitalism. (laughs) I define white feminism very early in my book to give you a real 
working definition of what I'm tracing, but also to give you a real comprehensive window into what you can follow once you close the book. Um, something that really motivated me to write this book is that while I was still in newsrooms, uh, the term white feminism started to get thrown around a lot in like response pieces and like really important, you know, like critical cultural pieces. And yet something I noticed, especially as an editor, was that no two people seem to be operating from the same definition. The definition I settled on for my book, for Clarity for the Reader, is uh, white feminism is a very specific approach to gender equality that pulls considerably from capitalism, from labor exploitation, from imperialism and white supremacy, as well as many other isms that you can track. Um, and its biggest hallmark, whether we're talking about now or 100 years ago, is that it's never been about structural critique or changing um, broader you know, limitations within structures. White feminism has always been about furnishing very specific individual women with skill sets to ascend in the power structure as it is. And that's its biggest hallmark. So what is this girl boss capitalism? Girl boss capitalism, I interpret as, once again, this very highly individualized autonomous way to overcome sexist, in some ways racist, in some ways homophobic barriers through individual accumulation, individual ascension, and then also through very savvy business prowess. Um, this idea that you can build a business empire and therefore overcome misogyny. To be clear, I think um, the whole girl boss culture is definitely, you know, rooted in white feminism, but I think of girl boss ideologies and stuff as um, being symptomatic of white feminism. I think white feminism is a lot bigger than, you know, 12 highly successful um, business owners who systematically fire their pregnant employees. <laughs> or who or who make their merch uh, in like factories that exploit women of color. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. This is something that I'm always grappling with on this show because I, I only interview uh, – I don't interview cis straight white men. Um, and I'm a trans non-binary person, but I'm still white. And it's like there's so many people that come on here that I have a little bit of a – like that are like, I'll, I'm going to teach all these women to be rich. And I feel a little bit like, okay, but who's getting left behind here? Virtually everyone. <laughs> yes. And that's not that's not unique to you or, you know, I think anything about how your producers structure the show. I think that's been the climate from which to pull right narratives about um, gender and um, also like structural barriers, but in a weird like flipped around way um, that, again, doesn't critique those structures. And to be clear, like. I think financial literacy is very important for everybody, you know, especially marginalized genders who have less resources from the jump. But I think the difference between, you know, what I'm saying and then say, like, you know, the challenges you have as, say, a host of this podcast is that financial literacy will not liberate everyone. Totally. I mean, it's so interesting to have you on because I've been uh, just for a TV project I'm working on. I've been reading a lot about the suffragettes. 
And there were definitely people who were like, we need the, to get women the vote, white women. And then the there were people in the women's rights movement who were like, we don't even f- the vote. We don't even want that. Then I watched videos of you talking about, you know, how Macy's started selling suffragette outfits. And, um, you know, so can you talk a little bit about that history and about like the showing your politics through buying? And isn't that just so wild that this continues to happen. It was like the early, early 1910s. People were just like, like women were like, we want to vote. And other women were like, the government is bad. Why are we voting in this bad government? And still to this day. <laughs> Gabby, you should write the introduction to my next book. That's like a really <laughs> concise summary. Um, no. So what, what Gabby is referencing is essentially so, you know, if you have navigated any sort of, you know, mainstream feminist, however that means to you, or like, you know, what I would quantify as white feminist politics uh, now or in the last maybe like five, six, seven years, um, you, of course, have been privy to the swell of, you know, merch you can buy. Um, it's not limited to white feminism. There's a lot of critiques about, you know, uh, queer marketing usurping this as well. And in some ways, like some black businesses. We have a whole episode about corporate pride. Okay. <laughs> it's not a unique practice, but um, what Gabby is referencing is that, you know, a lot of these uh, products that we think as being, you know, very kind of new and in, in, you know, my interpretation, kind of like irksome and a dilution of very important movements, very nuanced politics um, have been, you know, sort of watered down into these like, nevertheless, she persisted sweatshirts and like feminist AF mugs. My initial interpretation was like, wow, you know, this is um, new, but also like a real, (laughs) in some ways, like bastardization of these very important movements. Um, And also, you know, the transactional element, the idea that as somebody who's feminist identified, I walk into a space to increase my gender li- literacy or to understand the experiences of other marginalized genders. I pay money to be there. And then I am given a essentially like product to distill and advertise my politics. And what I learned through researching this book is that that is not new. (laughs) Um, White feminists have always done this. And the reason is that white feminism has always merged very cleanly with marketing and also increasing like buying power through the channels of capitalism. Um, As Gabby was, was referencing around the time that middle to upper class white suffragists were organizing for the vote for white women in in the United States. They detected very cleanly and accurately, I would argue, that they needed to, you know, to borrow a PR term, right, get out in front in terms of the raft of misogyny that they were going to get in advocating for the right to vote. So to be clear, right, like women who spoke publicly, who had opinions that, you know, were outside of the domestic sphere, who potentially did not carry the same political beliefs as the men in their family, particularly their husbands or their fathers, um, they were subject to just like unwavering harassment and heckling, you know, whether that's sexual harassment or violence. Um, The comparison I always use is that it's not unlike being a marginalized gender on social media now, if you like have an opinion that people do not agree with or think that you shouldn't have. (laughs) So the way that middle to upper class white suffragists decided to combat this or get around it was to really homogenize the image of who a, a, a suffragette 
suffragist was. And the way that they did that was through marketing, um, but also merging with the growing consumer marketplace. So as you just said, Macy's was deemed, I, I go into a lot of detail about this in my book, but Macy's was deemed by one suffrage organization to be the headquarters of suffrage supplies. And to be clear, in, when we're talking about suffrage supplies, we're not talking about like bottled water, you know, or their version of that, or like, you know, um, different things to protect yourself when like men inevitably came and grabbed you and, you know, called you a lot of derogatory terms. We're talking about outfits. <laughs> we're talking about like, you know, flags that said like votes for women, like luggage tags, like all sorts of, you know, little ornaments. Um, there was an official suffrage outfit that was displayed very prominently in Fifth Avenue in New York. Very, very pretty window displays. And that was really the point in history where white feminism um, realized and also really strategized around the power of consumer culture. And that has absolutely endured through today. When I was like reading the book, it was like, it had to be a white woman. It had to be a thin woman. It had to be, and like you see this today where it's like, who who is the like representative for these politics that people can swallow? And it's like, not disabled people. For a long time in the beginning of my career, I went very high femme. And in my mind, I was like reading what you wrote and it was like exactly what the thing was. It was like, my message can be, displayed because I chose to be super high femme, have long blonde hair, all these markers that I thought, okay, this will make the message a little bit easier. It, it won't give them ammo to be like, well, this is just some, you know, some like uggo who <laughs> who wants feminism. Well, and I think it, that that sentiment that you're picking up on, Gabby, is is very real and enduring. And, you know, one of my biggest takeaways in studying white suffragist culture, the, the language and materials that they created is that the ultimate goal of 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 white feminist suffrage. And I think it's important to distinguish that because much like how you said earlier, there were black suffragists, there were indigenous suffragists, but they, they didn't necessarily follow this map to um, thinking about the right to vote for, for women. But for white suffragists, what they were ultimately trying to, to communicate to the nation as they were in some ways disrupting a political channel was that uh, suffrage shared a lot of these conventions and ideals of what women were supposed to be. They were not trying to change them. Um, when you thought of a suffragist, you were supposed to think of, like you just said, like a, a young, thin, able-bodied white woman who was middle class or aspired to be. Um, don't worry, she's heterosexual. She still wants to get married. Um, a lot of materials that I went through for this book, you know, it's like a, a young woman with a certain type of hat, you know, to articulate her class status. And she's always like shielding a baby. So it's like, don't worry, like she still wants to produce children and like be a good mom. <laughs> um, and, and like, that's really her priority. Um, and, and through that dynamic, you should extend the vote to her. Um, because when you thought of a, a suffragist, that could be, you know, this plays out now, that could be your daughter, that could be your wife when you met her, you know, very much appealing to power holders. Um, and it's a very similar dynamic now, you know, white feminists uh, will often gravitate towards narratives of like money and earning power in their um, feminist rhetoric. 
So this idea that like women make this much money for, you know, companies, if you have X number of them on the board, that's a pretty white feminist metric and that it's like, you know, we have value because we make money. Um, and, and it illuminates a lot of the really like myopic infrastructure of that ideology. Can we talk about the marketing and the idea of the wage gap? Sure. Where, where would you like to start? <laughs> I guess I would like to start with like, I think it's been, I think it's, you know, been talked about as this definitive thing, but I was like, okay, so the, that's the wage gap for white women. And then what is the wage gap for other, for other people? And we almost never talk about that. I agree in terms of the way the wage gap was always reported on in adjacent publications and even the way it was sort of low-key message to me in the way that I was reporting it or covering it or assigning teams around it is that once again much like these suffrage campaigns that we were just talking about when you think of the wage gap you're supposed to think of a young thin upwardly mobile white woman who is working in a white collar job and she is not getting as much money as the cis man sitting next to her, and that is unfair and wrong. And again, I, I go into a lot of detail about this in my book, but as poorly as you know, white cis women have been doing in this structure for many years now, Black women, Latinas, Indigenous women, queer people across all classes and race have also been doing incredibly poorly in this structure and in like narrowing the wage gap. Um, I cite a statistic in my book, so I just turned 35 this year, and in my entire lifetime, um, Black women have, to use that language, narrowed the wage gap with white cis men by less than 10 cents in my entire lifetime. And I mean, really, truly less than a dime of progress in over three decades. And Latinas have fared even worse. They're at a nickel of, of progress in my entire lifetime. And then all these other people who I just referenced are really just kind of asterisks like oh by the way latinas are you know making this much less black women are making this much less um and that that doesn't even speak to you know all the complexities within marginalized genders about where you sit in terms of being gender nonconforming where you sit in terms of like your class um there there, there are so many variances that go into White collar work, especially if we're talking about like the respectability politics that go into sort of corporate worlds and a lot of, you know, like queer presentation, a lot of like non-white presentation, whether we're talking about, you know, how you wear your hair, um, different like cultural markers, like these do not fit into corporate America. And it's unclear sometimes from the more dominant wage gap data that's out there how this factors in, especially because a lot of these things are very coded. Um, I'm mixed race. And so a lot of I have extremely coarse curly hair that I've had, you know, most of my life. And even just the messages I've gotten as like a very light skinned person who is often mistaken for white, the messaging in a lot of um, offices I've worked at, and especially, you know, within women's media, which is like hyper feminized, um, you know, hyper white whitewashed, certainly, um, is that, you know, in order to look professional, um, I should be straightening my hair. And I'm light. And people say that to me in very coded ways. So if I did not present as I did, I'm sure they would have, you know, much more pointed language. But I'm just saying, like, these are all factors that play into marginalized genders, 
making less than cis men in the workplace. Yeah. I often, we had a guest on who talked about uh, Richard Ford, who wrote a book called Dress Codes. And he talked about um, a black woman who was fired from her job for having dreadlocks, but her job was telemarketing. So nobody saw her anyway. <laughs> and like, also, you know, I think about when you were talking, I was thinking about a couple of people I follow on Instagram who are indigenous, who got their indigenous tattoos for like um, on their faces, which is like a rite of passage. And I think that was like really amazing that they followed this like long tradition, but I was imagining them in a corporate setting and I was like, I'm not seeing it. Sucks. Another factor to consider in this, which is important and I think illuminates a lot of these same factors is that there's the um, uncontrolled wage gap which is, you know, just across, say, like identity and background and then earnings. So regardless of positions or companies, if you look at, say, across like Latinas, there's, you know, how much money they make. And then there's, say, like, you know, white men. Right. And that's across so many positions. Then you look at the controlled wage gap, which is how it's referred to. And that is more of like a one to one ish in terms of like, you know, all the um, women of color, say, and like white cis guys who are in, you know, this company or this sector or this. And the um, controlled wage gap is narrower. So if we are looking at, you know, broader data that has to do with, say, like, all of the people who are, say, in like certain private healthcare companies, some of that is narrower than, say, the uncontrolled wage gap, which is literally like, Black women have less money than all these other groups across all kinds of vocations in all types of fields. Um, and to me, I mean, that really raises larger questions about like labor in general. Um, and some of my frustrations with a lot of dominant wage gap narratives is that there isn't a holistic reinterpretation reinterpret of labor. And I and in, in some ways, I think about that in terms of, you know, all the unpaid labor that a lot of marginalized genders do in their home, um, including taking care of children if they have any, you know, loading um, the dishwasher, cleaning the floor, making sure the bathroom's clean. Um, these are still, by and large, huge facets of our life that require labor and resources that are primarily sustained and held by women of color. Whether we're literally talking about um, for, you know, a lot of, say, like middle class, upwardly middle class women who have outsourced uh, a word I do not like, but I think is pertinent to use here, um, a lot of that labor to w women of color, immigrant women to come in and take over these responsibilities. Um, or, you know, said woman herself, right, who is definitely not a quote unquote girl boss, but say like the matriarch of her family, who makes sure that that all of the dishes are clean in her house, who makes sure that her kids and grandkids are fed and off to school. And so it, it raises larger, I think, more pertinent questions about what types of labor is being performed by whom? What you, I was thinking about some of the white women I've had on this show and they say, well, I built a seven figure business and now I only hire people who would not be hired by other places. You know, I only hire indigenous people. I only hire uh, fat people. I only hire people that w would not be normally in those structures and they feel that they're really doing something. Um, a very popular and enduring tenet of white feminism is to collapse business ethics with feminist credos. And I think it's important to recognize that many other feminisms 
in in the United States and I'm sure internationally as well, many gendered movements across, you know, fat politics, disability politics, queer and trans, Latinx, um, indigenous, black lesbian feminism, they're not trying to do that. <laughs> they're not trying to make a company quote unquote good or friendly or, you know, reinterpret what a company is in terms of what it's able to do for the world. If you are collapsing those, I would argue that's a very white feminist lens um, in that, you know, if if you actually wanted to empower your workers and not in the, you know, TM sense of the word, right, with like a gift bag, but like in, you know, in the more like civil rights sense of the word, um, your your company would have a union. I find this is like a very unique thing that's happening right now in um, like the American landscape of business where all these businesses, you know, whether we're talking about huge conglomerates or even like small businesses are trying to compete for like, who's the most like racially literate? Like who's, who's going to have the biggest float at pride? <laughs> I also, sometimes I really like when these companies like hire black women to come in and give speeches. I, I've, I almost, but like, you know what? Get the bag. It speaks to I, like so many weird, in some ways like black mirror dynamics of our time, you know, where it's like, <laughs> charge them $10,000 to come in there. <laughs> well, and they're like incredibly distinguished thinkers, you know, just like so nuanced. And yet this idea that you can pay this one incredibly influential, brilliant person to come in and fix your company, your entire company with a 50 minute talk is utterly laughable. None of the higher ups come to these talks, you know, like I think the real people who need a book like mine are the power holders, are the people who sit on the board, um, are, you know, the the people who are asking that you meet these incredibly difficult performance metrics quarter over quarter over quarter, and then are like suddenly horrified when reports come out that managers have been like working their employees to the bone and have been exploiting them and maybe like harassing them and saying like really racially illiterate things to them over Slack, you know, just horrified, like how could this happen? And yet, you know, that is a through line from uh, labor exploitation, I would argue through slavery, like profitability and, and exploitation lean very cleanly into a company having a, a lot of money. And so a lot of my, you know, tips <laughs> when I walk in is I was like, I think you should make less money. I really do. I think you should make less money. I was reading recently that, um, you know, in, in Amazon finally getting their union off the ground, they spent, according to, to the New York Times, they raised, you know, $120,000 in GoFundMe to like make this happen in terms of um, food, you know, having resources out there while people are, you know, having meetings or protesting or whatever. Amazon reportedly spent over $4 million just on anti-union consultants. <laughs> I know. I was going to say, I was like, oh my God, $120,000 is all they had? But like, I, I think that really speaks a lot about the dynamics that are happen happening here, where it's like, if you have over $4 million to basically union bust, why don't you just like funnel that towards your workers and the things that they're asking for? But again, you know, this is about power and control. Um, and to bring it full circle, I think something in addressing your question er earlier on, I think nationally we have to let go of this idea that feminism is profitable. Because Ooh. If, if, if you are actually paying people decently, if you have good health care, if 
the people in your company who have u- uteruses are able to have a decent parental leave if and when they have a baby. If people have COVID and need to recover, that's going to ultimately mean less profits for you. And that is the actual dollars and cents cost of treating people like humans and not, you know, cogs in the machine. Coming up next, more with Koa Beck. Your book, the the tagline is suffragettes to influencers. Let's talk about the influencer of it all. What do, what do you mean by that? <laughs> so I I trace in my book a lot of practices of say like middle to upper class white, you know, suffragists who we just talked about through a lot of what I consider to be like contemporary manifestations of white feminism now, especially on social media. And at the time that I was working in in a lot of newsrooms, you know, I was confronted with a lot of these say like, you know, young, mostly like business owners. So like cis women, you know, under 35, we'll just say who, you know, are able to grow this like incredible business empire and Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest to some degree, depending on the year we're talking about, that was a big part of them growing that business. And a dimension of that was, you know, casting their business story, a story about accumulating wealth, um, a story about, you know, building a business empire as a quote unquote feminist story. So what I mean when I say that is like post by post, like I'm, you know, a a feminist identified woman and therefore like me building this business is an innately feminist act. And I go into a lot of detail in my book about how like, sure, that is a white feminist act. (laughs) It is, is like entirely laughable, completely untrue. And also, again, doesn't take into account so many of the barriers that, you know, prevent people from starting a, a newsletter should they want to, or from like starting, you know, a huge uh, a business with like the skill sets that they have. I think that's where white feminism really kind of like gets away from itself. It's one that's branded as like a feminist exercise, a, a, a feminist meeting that I'm there sort of scratching my head at you. It's almost like a me first kind of thing, which I, I always think about. It's like, Okay, me first. Like I'm going to when I worked at BuzzFeed, it was very much like that, where it was like, okay, I'm going to get really successful and then I'll take you with me. But it's it's like this thing, like, just wait, let me do this. You wait. So I almost imagine that with like the vote. Right. It's like, okay, hold on. We're going to get white women the vote first and then we'll come and help you. And it's like, wait, what? Why? Also, as like politically fraud as that is, I would like to remind you that they did not come back for black women to get the vote. No, not for a long time. No, literally after the vote for white women was secured in the United States, a number of black suffragists, um, this is in my book, came to a number of, you know, white suffrage organizations. And they were like, hey, um, literally, we can't vote. Like there's like polling taxes. There's all these like, you know, Jim Crow politics. When we line up to, to vote as black women, um, it's just not happening. And literally the, the suffrage groups were like, not our problem and and continued to pump up this like marketing narrative of like, we have won the right for all women to vote in the United States. And that was not true. Miss Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Yeah. <laughs> what would be, what are some ways that we can change this conversation? Um, you know, I, I really appreciated the way you even like in, in the book talked about like, Muslim women and focused on, um, you know, thinness and youth. How do we how do we fix this conversation for for mult for multitudes of people? 
Well, kind of like I alluded to earlier, I think if we actually are talking about all marginalized genders and not just, you know, people who come from middle class homes and went to college and, you know, are able to buy a home one day, um, if we are talking about everyone, and I say that very intentionally because I think some people aren't. Um, and I think that in it, no, and like maybe they don't want to, unclear, uh, based on interviews I've read. Again, I think this is where feminism becomes more of like a branding tactic, you know, rather than like something that actually changes your consciousness and the way you think about marginalized genders existing in the world. Um, but I think a good place to start is to have just a more holistic understanding of labor, kind of like I, I said earlier. Um, white feminism as an ideology and a practice never, ever, ever rethought low wage labor and they never rethought um, exploitative labor. And that's one of the reasons a lot of their politics fall apart when it comes to, you know, say like the women who come in and clean the office after everyone's gone or like, you know, the junior people in, in the company who do not have a C-suite and do not have a corner office. Um, also understanding that there is a lot of labor in our lives that is not economized. Um, I've been on a lot of panels about this over my career, again, kind of like I said earlier in this podcast, where like, you know, the value of marginalized genders can only be quantified through money. And that says a lot about how we are approaching this issue, right? Like capitalism in parentheses. But um, there is a lot of labor that goes into our lives that is traditionally and continues to be upheld by marginalized genders that is not recognized because of the foundations and structures of this company. COVID is a prime, you know, example where um, I wrote a piece uh, a, a little while ago now um, about how, you know, irked I was getting with these narratives coming out of COVID about, you know, quote unquote, COVID setting back feminism. And to me, that underscores like a huge banner of white feminism and that when I would read these articles, what you're actually communicating to me is like a certain number of women have been able to work and ascend in white collar work. And because of COVID, you know, whether that's like illness or the demands of their children or, you know, demands of family or job loss, just like the tremendous layoffs, these women are leaving white collar work. And the, and the fact that that is just rounded up to being indicative of all feminist progress is just completely outrageous. Um, to give you a comparative example, like in I, the year following COVID, a number of um, women who were domestic workers and, and cleaners lost their jobs in COVID, just like point blank. They, they literally could not go into people's homes. And this impacted, you know, their food security and impacted their ability to pay rent and pay mortgages. Many of these women, women of color primarily, were mothers to young children as well, if you want to factor that in. And yet these women losing their jobs on a massive scale in this like very, I would argue, like important economy to our country, um, them losing their jobs isn't quantified as setting feminism back. And that's very revealing about who is being talked about in these like white feminist narratives that are, you know, allegedly about all women and non-binary people. But actually, once again, we're just talking about one. So holistic um, understandings of labor, I think, are key to moving beyond really narrow interpretations of the wage gap. And then also, I think, remembering I spend the last third of my book going into a lot of detail about this, but I think it's helpful to always bring bring gender awareness and feminism, whether you use that word or not, back to basic need. That's what a lot of feminisms and gender movements have been about 
in our country and in other parts of the world too. They've been about people having access to affordable housing, having access to clean water, being food secure, um, criminal justice reform, access to affordable health care. I think um, an important thing to keep in mind is that for you know a lot of white feminists, and I want to be clear, white feminists, not feminists who happen to be white. Yes. <laughs> um, people who people who support and advocate this ideology, which I explore in my book, cuts across race and class and in some ways orientation too. I've seen Susie Orman, baby. My former guest, Susie Orman, who told me, I said, you own a private island. And she said, I've earned that private island. Oh. <laughs> and I was like, okay, ma'am. Wow. So unapologetic. I like questioned her and she was just like, I don't care. <laughs> Again, I think this is a good example. Um, white feminists uh, have often started their mobilization, their gender consciousness, their strategies, their um, political campaigns at lofty education and business opportunity. That's where they often start. And I would argue, having spent, you know, 10 years in front of these really you know, dominant cultural narratives about these like really exceptional women who were supposed to like aspire to, to have equal rights, which I don't agree with. Um, I think they start there because all their other basic needs are met. So again, center yourself around basic need for marginalized genders. And then also remember that there's a lot of labor, essential labor to our country and to our lives that um, our country has not economized. And there, there, I cite some really incredible thinkers in my book to explain why that is. I just want to lightly uh, include AMAB non-binary people in this conversation as well, because I think sometimes when we say women and non-binary people, I think uh, it, it, we don't remember that AMAB non-binary people exist. So I just want to shout out to those people. But I'm just curious, what do you think about UBI and reparations? Universal basic income, so everyone gets $2,000 a month from the government. Um, I am, um, I would definitely support a UBI metric. Um, reparation is, is, is a conversation I am consistently in the front seat of the proverbial auditorium um, to at least like listen to and understand. Um, I uh, am a huge reader of Dr. Angela Davis, and I always have been. And she's very influential to, to me and the way that I think. And she cited a lot in my book. And something that she says a lot that I think can go into a conversation of, of reparations, but isn't like unique to it, is that, you know, a lot of efforts regarding uh, like Black Americans having access to certain things, getting like racial equity in in colleges or other spaces. Um, th these are conversations that should have happened after slavery. Uh, and, and, and they just straight up did not happen. And so now we're sort of wading through, you know, decades now of like really, you know, obtuse head scratchy peaches at pieces being like, oh, you know, but like, why do black women make, you know, less money overall? Like, why is that? That's so weird. And it's like not. <laughs> they couldn't buy houses for years. What are you talking about? Yeah. A lot of the uh, material that is out there to explore that especially if we're talking about a white feminist lens, often blames her for that. So it's like, you know, well, you clearly didn't negotiate. Like you didn't come in with like the appropriate skill set. You didn't advocate for yourself. You know, that, that's often what white feminism has um, responded with in terms of like 
inequalities on that level. And so I am definitely um, reparations, I should say, is a very big tent. There's like a lot of different. So is UBI. I'm just I'm asking you like an intense question just because I'm like fascinated by your brain. So I was like, I'm so (laughs) curious. Thank you, Gabby. That means a lot to me. Um, Yeah, these are both very big tents. People have had all different theories and approaches to these. Um, I will note for the record that I am here for both to learn and listen. I am not against either of these measures ideologically, but there is a lot of nuance and difference between, you know, what, you know, one person is advocating as reparations, you know, in an Instagram post um, versus, you know, some other topics that say like, you know, black feminists have been talking about for many, many years. Thank you so much for being here. Where can people find you and, um, and buy your book and learn more about you? Um, I am on um, everything except TikTok. I do not touch that. Um, You can find me on all the things. It's very important to me as the author of this book and a lot of scholarship that went into it that, you know, while you are welcome to to buy it and that is available to you, and of course, you know, my publisher would appreciate that, um, you can get her from the library. That is a public resource. So if you are, you know, learning disabled or you are dyslexic, I also read the audiobook. I hear people like it. Um, I had a wonderful director. I loved going to a studio for four straight days. Well, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Everyone, please go read Koa's book, White Feminism, From the Suffragettes to Influencers and Who They Leave Behind. And then think about who is left behind. I would love to hear from you. Be sure to send me an email at gabbyisbadwithmoney at gmail.com or leave me a voicemail at 844-474-4040. You can also email me a voice memo if you prefer. Join our online communities too. We're on Instagram, Discord, TikTok, Patreon, and Facebook. Links to all of these will be listed in the episode description. Also, leave us a five-star Apple review, please. They help the show show up on the charts. Uh, If you leave a five-star review, I will read it on our Friday mailbag episodes, I promise. And don't forget to listen to the show the day it drops so we can get on the charts even more and spread the word. If you listen day of, it boosts us on the charts. And I would be eternally grateful. Okay, thank you. Love you. Bye. Done.